Welcome back to The Coaching Bubble, where we explore all things coaching. I'm your host, Stephen Behan, and this show is for everyone, all coaches, all sports, from novice to elite, and we hope to leave you with some tips and advice from some of the most interesting people in the field. On today's show, we have Nora Stapleton. Nora has only recently retired from the Irish women's rugby team, and as well as being a former Gaelic footballer for Donegal. Nora is the IRFU's Women and Girls Development Manager and has overseen a period of unprecedented growth in the women's game. Over the course of the episode, we discuss the importance of mastering the fundamental skills and how they transfer to all sports. We discuss the women's game in Ireland and girls' participation levels, as well as talking about the importance of developing clubs and an awareness of sport. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Nora, it's great to have you in. Um, you're currently the IRFU, so Irish Rugby's Women and Girls Development Manager. You are a former international rugby player. You are also a former GEA player to quite a high standard. Um, so maybe you could just give us a bit of background and maybe how you got into the role that you're in right now. Yeah, certainly. Um, so as you mentioned, played both uh, Gaelic football and rugby. Just retired probably a year at this stage to the day. Um, but how I got into my role, I guess I did sports management in college in UCD. Um, always had an interest in all sports. And I guess when I was heading to college or picking my CEO courses, you know, there wasn't too many courses that you could do. But thankfully, I came into the sports management course. Um, and then out of that, lucky enough, Dublin GEA had started developing or started employing uh, rugby development or GEA development officers um, or games promotional officers and I got into one of those roles so I spent six years working for Volunteer St John's as a games promotion officer there um, and during that time while I was still playing Gaelic football I was starting to play more and more rugby um, it would have been 2010 when I got my first cap for Ireland so I was still working for the GEA and they were very supportive of me um, obviously you know you don't get many chances to represent your country uh, rugby was a very very new sport for me um, but I just took to it naturally um, had to learn everything from scratch um, but I guess you know I probably went through the when I was coming towards the end of the six years in Volunteer St John's I knew I wanted a change I knew I wanted more of a challenge and I was always looking at women's rugby and saw that there was a huge market there for growth and development and there was just so many opportunities there were so many blank canvases um, as to what you could do to in order to try and develop the sport and get more girls playing um, and I just felt that that was going to be my next job um, now, very much wishful thinking at the time, but lucky enough, a job did come up um, and I threw myself into the into the ring um, and did everything I could to get it. And that's where I'm now. So I'm five and a half years into the role at this stage. And it's been um, just, I suppose, it's been a massive learning curve. It's been filled with challenges and huge highs and different lows. Um, but the game is only really going in one direction and that is up. It's it's growing. Um, and I hope that I'm contributing to that, I guess. Yeah, well, certainly. Um, and we'll come back to that a little bit later in terms of how you're actually increasing participation in, in, in female sport and I suppose booking the trend. Um, just to touch back base in terms of your own playing career, um, Obviously, as GAA and the accent is a giveaway from Donegal, um, you would have ended up with an All Ireland title, intermediate title with Donegal. Yep. Against one of your future teammates in Neve Briggs, again, yep. the Waterford team. <laughs> um, and then you made the transition then into rugby. I'm very interested to see 
did you bring things that you learned as a GEA player into the rugby or vice versa or how did that work? Yeah, so I would have, I just said, played GEA. Um, I got on the Donegal team when I was 18, so I was quite old in that respect. Um, but I guess I was ju- I was just in college, first year in college. Um, we actually won the junior in 2003 um, and then it was seven years later when we won the intermediate, which was 2010. Um, so I had gotten on the... Irish team in 2010 as well for that Six Nations. I went to World Cup in 2010, so I wasn't actually on the the Donegal panel for that year. I had to take a back seat in the lead up to that because I wanted to concentrate on rugby. And it was just to play two sports at that level, it was quite difficult. And especially in a World Cup year, we were training for the whole summer leading into it. So when we were away at the World Cup, the Donegal manager kind of touched base and you know, it was just kind of saying, what do you think? You know, would you consider coming back? And immediately I was just said, no, definitely not. It's not fair in the players that were there. Um, but it was more so that there was a few injuries and they were short in uh, midfield and positions like that. Obviously, that was my position. Um, so the only reason I came back is was because the captain then rang me and, you know, it was a more of a team or it sounded like it was more of a team decision rather than just the manager bringing me back in so I had already started playing rugby myself and Neve had gone off to the World Cup together and then we both lined out in the number 26 jersey for the two the two different uh, counties when we came back then a couple of months later but you won and I'm sure you reminded her of that over and over do you? Yeah I don't even have to remind her there's, <laughs> there's plenty of pictures that always come up of the two of us bouncing off one another and things like that and she has a few tears at the end and I'm sitting there smiling Excellent and I, th- one of the reasons I brought it up is this seems to have been a trend for a lot of uh, GA players in particular that would have gone into rugby then afterwards I'm curious is that because the two sports are Obviously, there's similarities, but was it because there was lack of opportunity beforehand? Yeah, I think you've hit the two points there. So, and you sorry, you mentioned that in the last question. Um, one, the skills, the transferable, or the how the skills transfer over to one another um, is, you know, they're very the same. Um, there's a small bit of contact, obviously, in in Gaelic football, um, but it's mainly about evasion, ball handling, kicking, catching, passing, all the fundamental skills. Um, I would have learned those growing up as a kid, but it was I played every single sport when I was younger. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there wasn't any rugby for me to play, so I didn't get that sampling phase as a young child coming through. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my kind of early to mid-20s that I actually got the chance to, to play rugby. Um, so I think we are seeing more people now transferring across um, and it is still that same reason. They just didn't have the chance to play when they were younger. Um, We have more younger girls playing um, but again, they're playing all sports so we don't really have any girls that are coming through who only play rugby the whole way up, um, say through the pathway or anything like that, which which is a great thing. Um, You know, we want girls to play camogie, football, um, soccer and rugby whatever it might be gymnastics all that Yeah do you think that sort of a multi-sport base is important for for when they do get if they do get up to that sort of elite level I do from a fundamental skills point of view yeah um, I don't think you know they necessarily get those skills as kids in the in the home environment anymore um, and if they're only playing one sport I think you know then it ends up that you only have one coach 
Whereas if you're playing multi-sports, um, you have a number of coaches there, all who will have different skills that they can that they use within their coaching sessions. Um, and so I think that's important to get a number of different voices. Um, and then, as I mentioned, all those basic skills. I mean, we do get girls who are coming to rugby and they would have difficulty catching a ball. Um, and a lot of the time you tend to see that they didn't maybe play many sports when they were younger. But now they want to try a team sport and rugby is one of the sports that they're picking up. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because a lot of the, let's say, the coaching researcher out there out there would say that multi-sports kids have a better chance than of reaching an elite level. But I suppose I never looked at it. I always looked at it like what you said about the fundamental movement skills and stuff like that. But... I never looked at it as in that you could learn from so many different coaches. I think that's a very interesting point. And it brings me on to my next question. You would have had various coaches at GAA and at rugby. Would they have been a big influence on you and, and perhaps in, in the job that you're doing at the moment or your coaching for Dublin GAA before that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they all influence me. Um, you pick up things from all of them. So I guess like whenever I was playing... I was always kind of coaching as well at the same time. So whenever I got on the the Donegal team um, or even when I was in college, I was maybe helping out with the second teams in college and things like that. So um, there hasn't really been a stage where I've just worn a player hat. You know, in my club teams, there's always a side of me because I guess my, profesh, my profession was coaching as well. So when I worked, I've now, I'm what, over, I'm nearly 12 years in the sporting environment. Um, and a big bit of those 12 years is with a coaching hat on. So every time I'm coached by or any person who coaches me, I'm always taking something from that. Um, you're always learning what to do, what not to do, what affects you as a player, which may affect other people as a player, um, what you would replicate, what you wouldn't. Um, so it's just a constant learning and absorbing environment, I think, um, from all the coaches I've had. Um, obviously, as you go up the levels, the coaches tend to get better, but they don't always get better. Um, but there's certainly been strong influences there as I've gone through my life where one or two would have had more of an impact and I've been able to take more and use it in my own coaching sessions um, when from what they've been doing. In terms of playing at the international level, you had some great success with Six Nations and a famous win against the All Blacks. Um, are, is there is there certain highlights there or is there other things that maybe didn't make the headlines that, that you would have judged as more of a success or, or you'd have more pride in? So in 2013, we won the Grand Slam with Ireland. And I guess in that year we played, I think, I don't know if England was our first game or second game, but we played England and beat them 25-0. Um, and that was the first time Ireland had ever beaten England. But in the lead up to that, there was a few players came in from who were Irish but lived in England or were playing in England. Um, and it was very much that sense of belief that kind of started to filter through the through the team and seeing the opposition as just as people um, rather than, oh my God, they're England and the white jerseys and they look so strong and they're so fast. And, you know, you start daydreaming about what you think the opposition are as opposed to just focusing on here and now and they're just individuals just like you and and they're just people um, so by beating them in that tournament 2013 and then we went on we beat France as well um, that was probably the the catalyst or that's you know that was one of the that was why we ended up beating the All Blacks in 2014 um, 
but you go back before that I mean the management team that we had in like Philip Doyle was in charge of that team he was he could be he could be angry but he could be gentle as well at the same time and I think that's important from a coach it's knowing when to put your arm around someone and when to actually you know tell them when you're not happy um and I've been on teams where the coach has been too soft and you just don't get you don't get the level of or the playing level out of the players that you want um but yeah I guess then when you move on to 2014 it was the kind of it was actually an SNC coach who made the biggest difference in the Irish team I think and it was her motivation to the players as we headed into 2014 and the World Cup there and her philosophy was we were going to be the fittest the strongest the fastest team in the World Cup now were we ever going to be that and we probably weren't that at the end of the tournament but that's what we that's just what we believed the whole way through um, and you were never in the sense of any doubt that you weren't um, but that was an SNC coach and it just shows you I think when you have your coaching team that you need to be that it's not just you controlling everything as a head coach um, that you have to trust and you have to set up a good coaching team around you and that's from the physio that's involved to your assistant coaches to the SNC coach you all need to be have the same goals or the same aims um, and then the same messaging that comes out from everybody as well but you can't forget the influence that other coaches can bring to your team whether it's motivation or team bonding or whatever it could be because um, certainly even team bonding we had a, a manager so obviously like in rugby your head coach is the person who controls everything the manager does the logistical stuff but she took it upon herself to make sure we did all the team bonding techniques that we needed to do because the coach wasn't interested in that, but as a manager, she saw it as being important. So it was very much the the whole management team um, for those couple of years with Ireland that actually resulted in the wins, um, and then the players fed off that. And, and, you know, when you're a solid team like that, anything can happen. Yeah, absolutely. I know now if I was listening to this at home and I was uh, hearing you talk about some team bonding stuff that has a big impact, mm-hmm. I'd be like, what type of team bonding what sort of activities <laughs> did you do so without betraying any yeah. confidences can you go into any details in some um, I think it's you know everything from the silly make and do classes that you have as groups in your squad to poster competitions um uh, to your away trips where you're blindfolded and you're navigating through trees you know there, there's so many of them um, we did the army camps like we did loads you do the nights out um, I guess one of the best ones I've seen and been a part of was with the Babas and if you think about that a coach so the the head coach has you for four days pretty much and you play a match at the end of those four days and you're a group of strangers and you have to come together and and like rugby in a way isn't like other sports where you can throw in a ball and you have forwards and backs and you know you get your head up and you try and you, you can kick the ball forward into the you know into space and things like that and with rugby it's kind of different because you have calls so if you want to win the line out you have to have your calls that you learn off by heart and you react to when they're called in the scrum you have to be able to get a feel for the people who you're, who you're with side by side and then there's calls off the scrum and then as a back line you have more calls as well depending on where you want to attack um, and then as a team you have a particular style or way that you're going to play so with the Babas we arrived in and our first challenge was we had a blank jersey and we had to colour in our jersey 
and then stand up and talk about it. And on the jersey was your story, who are you? Um, and by the time all of us, and we only had one minute to talk about ourselves. So by the time we went through the whole squad, you, when, at the start of that half an hour, you were sitting in a group or in a room with 30 strangers. By the end of it, you had a fairly good idea of who they were, where, where they were from, what they enjoyed doing, what were their passions. Um, and it's amazing the amount of information you can get out of that. And then you go out and do your first session and we had two training sessions, played a match and won the match. You know, and I think it just shows you the power of team bonding and when you bring people together and share a special journey like that, um, that's a sign of a good coach as well. Yeah, and the beauty about that is how simple it was. Like So like simple. 30 sheets of paper with a, with a, with a blank jersey. Yeah. I think anyone could do something like that. Anyone, everything from your under 10 or your under 12 team, the whole way up to your inter-county panel, to your, your international teams. And that was, you know, the Babas is a, it's a historical team, obviously. It's an international club. Um, and we had... We had a player who didn't have any English and she was even able to do it. So (laughs) I can show you. And I think it's the way, you know, we all think we have to spend money when we're doing team bonding stuff. Um, But you don't. You know, what's the cost of a photocopier or a few sheets of paper? I want to go back to your professional role in the development manager for, for women and girls. So I was doing my research and for this and I've read somewhere that there's a 200% increase since 2003 in women's uh, rugby. That would very much be, I suppose, going against the, the trend. We hear so much about female participation and dropping out at teenage years. Could you maybe expand on that? What sort of initiatives you're doing, what you're doing and, and what why it's working? Yeah, so when you think of women's rugby, it's actually a really young sport. So 2003, you had the numbers there. I think we had about 30 adult teams, maybe. Um, in 1993, Ireland women played their first ever international fi- fixture. So the game is only, what, 25 years old or something like that in Ireland. So it's still really, really young when you look at all the other sports. Um we have girls. Not, we have more and more girls playing. It's not that we have hundreds and thousands. We don't. Um, if I met, so, two thousand three. If we had sixty adult teams, we're up to about seventy. Like we hit eighty at one stage after two thousand and thirteen. Um, that's kind of dropped off. It was probably an unrealistic figure for where we're at. Um, but that was just adult. But back in two thousand and three, we wouldn't have any really had any youth teams playing. Um, now we have leagues in in all provinces, and um, we've got about kind of between two to three thousand kids playing regularly, um, and that's not including anything that happens in schools. Um, so, and again, they're all brand new players, and it comes back to when I was a ten year old kid, I didn't have a rugby team that I could go and play with. Um, there wasn't really much of an. Uh, an attitude or a, an appetite for girls playing in the boys teams because it was just so new to the to the male coaches back then that's all changed now so mini rugby um which is your 8 to 12 year old is mixed it's boys and girls playing together but we now have girls only teams as well and they're popping up everywhere so again even 5 years ago we didn't have any separate girls teams at under 10 or under 12 now we've got about 40 clubs across Ireland that are offering that with more and more every week there's a new club either looking to set up or they've already set up and they're looking for matches um, in terms of programmes we ran the Give It A Try over the summer there um, that was really just helping the clubs to recruit giving them a kind of certain time frame that they could do it we 
designed. So I designed coaching sessions for each of the weeks that the coaches would deliver. Um, so it was a little bit of hand-holding, but I, everyone's so time-sensitive nowadays and the coaches are quite new to rugby as well. Um, that it's easier to give them a sheet of paper with pictures and explanations on it and saying this is good for you to do on week one, here's week two, here's week three and just makes it easier for everybody and then I know as the as the lead personnel or leading the programme I know that what the girls have been taught in the clubs um, is at a, I suppose, a proper level or it's at, pitched at the right level for them as most of them are new to rugby um, but over the summer we had 1,080 girls I think the number came in that uh, who took part in one of the sessions around the country. Wow that's that's huge numbers. Um, is the perception that rugby is let's say a dangerous game for girls or not suitable for girls, is that gone or are you still fighting against that? Um, I'd say in the same way that it's not necessarily gone for the boys game either. Um, everybody what tends to happen is people look at all, the only rugby that they see is on TV. So unless they're part of a rugby club um, or they're coaching it, they only ever see what's on TV. And that's the professional male game, uh, which is so far from what is goes on in your day-to-day uh, club life in your local rugby club. Um, so that's one of the first things to consider. And then the second thing is uh, you tend to, you know, there's a few stories or a few um news reports and things like that around concussion um, so rugby tends to get pulled pulled out on those but you know we're quite open and honest about concussion and everything that's been done about it but it's not just a rugby injury um, so that's one of the other uh, kind of not myths but just one of the other areas where people seem to associate certain injuries and certain stereotype the game in a certain way um, we're seeing so many girls and parents will come and tell us this and teachers will tell us this, that rugby has given girls a new lease of life. Girls who would have not been active, would have shied away from any kind of sporting activity or team sports, um, would have maybe been a little bit within their shell. Um, through rugby, it's just opened up so much for them uh, because suddenly either their strength is used for you know, they use it positively or um, just being involved in a team again and working with your player left and right of you. And, and that's something we always try and coach in rugby. You don't get you don't get isolated in the corner forward or the corner back position. When you're defending, everybody defends together. And when you attack, everyone attacks together. So, you know, you, you always have a job to do. Um, and that's a really important side of it as well. So, look, I think um, it's... It is a contact sport, you know, there's no getting around that. There will be bumps and bruises and injuries, the same as you will get them in all sports. Um, but we very much we very much talk about the correct technique um, and that's one of the key things. So like in hurling or camogie, if you don't block properly, you're going to get a smack of the hurl. Um, in rugby, if you don't tackle properly, you might hurt yourself. But, um, you know, most of the time you just dust yourself off and you learn from it and then you move on and you do it right next time. So. The World Cup was on here, was it last summer? Yeah. Um, would that, that, that extra visibility, was that something that, that gave you guys a great promotional tool or did it have an impact or how did that work for you guys? Yeah, it definitely had some some impact. Um, I think it was varied. So as part of that, World Rugby asked you to design a programme what they call Impact Beyond 2017 so in other words how do you ensure when you host an event that you have an impact 
in relation to your participation numbers post the event. So my role was to design what that initiative would look like or what our programme would look like within Ireland. So I very much focused on the months leading up to the tournament um, and what we could do in order to promote rugby and promote the tournament then what we could do during the tournament itself because there's going to be a lot of information in the newspapers and the media etc etc and then what can we do post-tournament when all the kids go back to school and they've just been watching rugby for the whole summer Um, what can we do in schools so there was three elements to it Um, the give it a try that I just ran in the summer there Last summer, I ran it as a pilot to see what the appetite would be like for it and then use that as a basis for running it during 2018. Um, but the biggest one leading up to the tournament last year would have been the trophy tour. Um, I felt it was really important that we had some kind of initiative that would reach the far corners of Ireland because not everybody's on the IRFU Twitter page or Facebook page and not everyone's we're not going to be able to get it in every newspaper unless we go into the the regions basically so the trophy tour was my way of thinking well if I can get the clubs on board to do something in their club and then I get the trophy to them um, that's a way because the local newspapers if there's something happening in the club that's what they want they go down to they take the photographs and then it ends up in the Galway Gazette or whatever it might be or the Westport Herald I don't I don't even know the names of the newspapers anymore Rover, which was the Land Rover that was used for the male men's World Cup in 2015. Um, so we to, we were able to get that rebranded. World Rugby saw the value in us doing the trophy tour. Um, we ended up traveling 20,000 kilometers. So like I knew I wasn't going to be able to run the whole thing. And as I mentioned, it was about getting clubs and schools involved. So we put out an application form, asked them to apply um, and it would only be based, they'd only get the visit if they told us what they were going to do. So everybody came back saying how they'd run school blitzes, fun day out, like each each idea coming back from the clubs and schools was different. Um, but it was massive. Like We went into some schools and for the week leading up to the visit from the trophy, they were doing art competitions. Every single classroom had posters of Irish jerseys coloured in, had done projects on the teams that were participating in the World Cup. They just, you know... They built it into the curriculum for for leading up to the visits, which was exactly what we wanted, but and more. Um, so that was a way of creating that awareness. Um, and all those kids that were in school then, when they were during the summer, if the World Cup was being talked about, it, they were familiar with it. Coming back to school, we have Aldi Play Rugby, which is um, the CCROs or the club community rugby officers deliver it. Um, and suddenly you've boys and girls in primary schools playing tag rugby. Um, and last year we had 44,000 or just over 40,000 girls that participated in that. Um, so everything that we do at some way, like all my initiatives, all my programmes, in that year I linked it back to the World Cup to ensure it was either um, making people more aware of the tournament so they'd buy tickets and we sold out for the, the finals and things and we sold out UCD. We probably could have fit it more in there if it was a different venue. Um, and then after the World Cup, everything we did was capturing any of that um, awareness or interest that was captured. We had a game for them to play and the kids knew where to play. Now, did we do it right? We'll, look, we'll learn so much from it. 
I would do it. I'd probably do some things differently next time. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, they didn't necessarily fail. We still got more girls playing, which was the, the end product. Yeah, I think the visibility, even in the press and stuff in the run up to it was huge, um, which probably hadn't happened that much before. Now I think Ireland is getting better at it, but it's still a, bit, a, a way to go. Um, just going back to coaching, I'm not that familiar. Is there many women involved in coaching in the in the women's game, or is it predominantly men, similar to let's say ladies football or camogie? It is predominantly men. Um, we have about 179 female coaches at the minute, but that's across all ages. Um, we are only getting good now, I'd say, of players who have played the game and then are staying involved as coaches. And we're seeing more and more of that now. A couple of the provinces have done some really good initiatives where they've um, run kind of bespoke coaching courses for female players who are transitioning into coaching. And they've been really useful as well. Um, but certainly the percentages are increasing, the number of females getting involved. We're seeing a lot more mums getting involved in mini rugby, um, which is great. And again, it kind of comes back to that fear factor getting involved. They seem to think that, you know, what they see on TV, how could they ever possibly coach that game? But it's all about starting at the basic level. And, and to be honest, at the end of the day, it's just about supervising an activity that the, where the kids are learning. Um, you know, you don't have to have all the knowledge in the world but you have to make sure that the players enjoy themselves. They arrive wanting to train and they leave satisfied and they've enjoyed the session and they've learned something new. Um, we do have an action plan, a women in rugby action plan coming out soon. Um, a big part of that will involve the coaching and getting more females involved, not just in coaching, but in all aspects of the game. Um, it's something there if you really want to change where traditionally perhaps it's been a male dominant environment um, it has certainly changed over the last five years, but now we want to develop a woman in action plan, which would tell everybody what our ambitions are for the game um, and the female, how we want to get more females involved in coaching, refereeing, volunteering and all the governance levels as well. OK, so that sort of leads me on to what I want to ask you about next, because... Uh, I was looking at the women's long-term athletic development plan that you guys have developed and the seven steps to it. You've talked about the last one, which is retention, about getting players when they stop to go and give back. And it's obviously starting to give dividends there now. I'm real curious, though, um, in terms of developing it, it's rare to see one that's tagged as a women's long-term development plan. A lot of the time it's just you see long-term athletic development plans thrown out all over the place. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly go through some of the steps and maybe what was what the thinking was behind it when you were developing it? Yeah, so there if you had a LTPD model, which was, um, was it six to six nations, maybe I think it's called. Um, and that was developed in 2000 and it was late, to th maybe 2009, around about that time. So it was quite a while ago. Um, it didn't consider the female player in it. So when you read through the plan, um, it was very much focused on the, the boy coming through. Um, and then just based on where the girls were at, get females could join at, at any age. Um, but also the the LTPD, the, the original one was very much, uh, very stuck in the age brackets. Whereas with the female LTPD, we wanted it to be, okay, even if you are coaching a, like it does run chronological age, um, but if you are coaching an adult team, some of your players that come in, they might be 
25 years of age and their skill level is the equivalent of an eight-year-old who's starting rugby for the same time um, or their knowledge of the game is the same as the eight-year-old. So you have to be able to tailor your session based on um, the knowledge of the game that that player has. But then, you know, they might not know anything about rugby, but they still know how to sidestep somebody and they can grasp the rules a little bit faster. Um, so the way we designed the plan was... Um, if you're starting off at minis, it's how the minis would progress through and it's how they progress in rugby. It's not necessarily how their athletic ability progresses. So it's how the game would change as they get older. So everything from that kind of unstructured play, moving into like when you would bring in the tactical side of things um, and again, just how and game management and game awareness, match awareness. So how that changes as the the game evolves because you go from mini rugby which is a small sided game and when you go into the age grade brackets the game changes you start to get close to the 15 aside game and then by the time you come to adult obviously you start getting players who are being pulled maybe into provincial squads and things like that so it's just how the female rugby player develops as she moves through the female game um, and that's where it was different and it's that's how if you were doing the male one again you could write the male one differently as well to show how a rugby player develops so how a person develops through the game of rugby rather than just as they get older stronger and what changes in their their body and things like that so it was a little bit different and the reason we did it was because the current LTPD was quite old um, so there just there was an, an opportunity there to develop one particularly for the women's game um, to see what it would turn yeah, out like you know I think it's a it's a really really good plan and I'd recommend anyone involved with uh, coaching girls at any age in any sport to have a look at it and I know it's up on the website um, I want to go back to one point that you raised there you talk about uh, you need to be able to tailor your pl- training for the skill level or the knowledge of the game so uh, I want to put you on the spot here <laughs> um, I think that's one of the toughest things to do in coaching dealing with a session where to, that you're dealing with the best and the worst within the group and all those in between mm-hmm. so how do we do that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I'm still playing with Old Belvedere at the minute. And I guess, I mean, for Old Belvedere, I've been probably, you could say, player coach for the last, I don't know, six to seven years because I've um, I've got so much knowledge in the game and I'm used to coaching or, I'm, you know, I'm used to tutoring co- coaches that I'm able to... It'd be wasteful if I didn't say anything in a coaching session um, and work with the coaches rather than maybe yeah there's no point me just training when I can add value to everything else so at the minute in Belleville you've got myself who's played for Ireland and you've got other girls who've played for Ireland and we've got brand new girls who have never picked up a rugby before and some of them who haven't played sport in the last 10 years and um, so you do and every single session so far this year for the last six weeks um, we've had a new player at every single session so you know you think you, you've you introduced it and then the following week you have to be able to do it again um, I guess there's a number of different ways like certainly I think as a coach you need to have um, you, well, you need to have your year planned out and it's so frustrating for me when I see coaches who just go one week at a time and just make up the sessions on the fly in the car before they get out onto the training pitch I think if you're a serious coach you need to know 
what it is you want to cover in the year then what do you want to cover in the first couple of months what do you want to cover in the first month and um, so certainly with any of the the coaches say are involved in Belleville we would have sat down to outline well what is it that we want to achieve within these first couple of months and then what do we do when we do have those new player, players so every single drill or game like there's some games that we can play it all together and um, both the new and the older players and then there are other things where if we're doing drills and games we would separate out the new players and you know we just were quite honest with them um, rugby is a technical sport but we're able to break down the skills for them um, and then build it up f- for them again so there are some players that would be brought out and, and I guess this is where okay if you're coaching on your own it's difficult if you've got extra coaches you can do that one and one at the side um, or you can have you know two coaches take take a drill each or take a game each and um and you can have the different abilities in, in those and um, but then it's how you reintegrate them back into to the main or the the main bulk of players as well and I think the key thing is okay you don't want to do it too early but you don't want to leave it too long either because at the end of the day they're there to train and to learn um, and every single player likes to be challenged as well that's how you know that's when they start learning um but it is kind of integrating them back into the main bulk of players Um, but I think you do have to separate them out when you're to show them the basics that they need to know to get by Um, and it's quite easily done like we've done stations as well where you might have four or five six groups um, all working on mini mini pod stuff um, where more experienced players might take or lead part of that as well you know I think that's that's the points that you're raising are, are, are things that coaches in the similar similar scenario can actually take from that and, and stuff that they can implement themselves if they want you know um, we're running out of time we have three questions that we ask everyone that comes on the show oh, yeah. so the first one is what does the term successful coach mean to you? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes it depends on the level that you're at as a coach um, and whether it's performance or or anything else underneath that. Um, to define it, I'd probably say your set, the players enjoy your sessions. Um, your numbers keep growing because of those sessions are enjoyable um, and the players leave having learned something. Um, I think, though, you can't forget that as you do go towards maybe that performance level so I think we become too competitive or we go into competition mode too early with a lot of kids but if you are you know division one under 18 adult um, there's a little bit of successfulness there comes around to the winning of matches as well Um, so it's I'm not like when I play a game I don't tend to remember the score I'm lucky enough at international level there was a scoreboard and a, and a, and a clock for me to watch um, but growing up it, the score never mattered for me it was just the performance on the pitch um, so when it all costs wasn't important but then when you get to say playing inter-county or uh, for your province or for internationally then a successful coach it does come down to results as well and how you can see the players improving um, or their stats are improving What is the best book resource podcast that you'd recommend to coaches listening in? Um, yeah I think it's this is kind of really cliche answer but don't forget I mean the, there's resources everywhere from every coaching course that you go to to every coaching session that you go out and watch um, and sometimes those can be more valuable than any book that you'll pick up and read a lot of the time the books that you have are written by managers who are 
managing or coaching teams that are paid a lot of money. So what they're involved in and what they have available to them. Um, yes, they have different techniques and there's great quotes that you can pull out. But at the end of the day, it's the excellent. It could be the coach in your own club who just has such a good mannerism with um, the boys and girls at under 10, under 12 or under 16. Um, and that team is thriving the whole way through. Sometimes it's that coach and how that coach treats his players um, can be the biggest asset to you as well. So I think be careful of reading every book and maybe look over the fence at what your neighbours are doing or what the coach down the road is doing and you can learn so much from that also. Um, but I mean, I did read Jim McGuinness's book because I was interested to see how, de- how he dealt with uh, um, all the negativity around the Donegal team and I did find that interesting and just how he had to stay true to what he wanted and then bring the players with him as well. Um, I find that really interesting read. Um, but I, I flick from both autobiographies to coaches books but I still come back to going out and watching Joe Schmidt take a session with a group of under 16 boys and you're just or even coaching the coaches and seeing what he does is just amazing and it's so basic and I think we overcomplicate things and my motto now is play more and talk less when coaching. So my last question is, what are your top tips for developing coaches? And please don't answer, go out and watch Joe Smith coaching because you'll be be inundated with requests. Um, No, so play more, talk less as a coach. So let the kids do more. I think as coaches, we like the sound of our voice too often. So let them play. When they make mistakes, keep your mouth shut, let them play again. And maybe when they make the same mistake for the fourth time, then you know you you start to step in. Because a lot of the time, like kids make a mistake, they may learn from it. When they make it again, they learn something else. When they make that mistake the third time, you have to be able to see if they can problem solve it themselves or if somebody on the team can help them with it. Because then you know when they're on the pitch and somebody makes that mistake, their teammate's gonna be the one to say, here, listen, you know, do it differently or whatever. Um, and that's really important from a team. Um, and then I think the other thing is planning. As I mentioned, there's so many coaches that, and I know we're all time constraints, but if you're serious as a coach and you want to get the most from your sessions, if you want them to start on time, finish on time, you need to know what you're going to be doing within that session as well. And then even if you've got five activities set out, you need to have variations, about five variations of each of those because you don't know what path your session is going to take based on how your first activity goes, etc., etc. So um, planning out your year, planning out your sessions, um, the whole macro, micro periodization. I know it sounds really complicated and maybe it only kicks in at a certain level, um, but I think it's so important if you're serious as a coach and you want to get the best out of your players and you want them to enjoy it as well. Isn't there some some great points to finish on? I think. Um, look, thanks a million for coming in. I think anyone listening will get some great insights into both your playing career and your coaching career and how that's helped you in other areas. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for listening to the Coaching Bubble. I hope you learned something that can help your own coaching in some way. Anything referenced on the show, like books or podcasts, if you follow our Twitter page at Bubble Coaching, we'll put everything up there. You can find us on SoundCloud. We'd love some feedback, so feel free to leave a comment or a review. Once again, the show is brought to you by the Coach Education and Development Centre of the Camogie Association. Thanks for listening. Till next time.